From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, the message shared by the superintendent of schools in Aurora about being black in America today. Plus, using murals on the sides of buildings to continue conversations about racism and calls for change. You're constantly seeing the image of this individual and you're constantly being reminded, hey, this is the story that happened. We can't forget about this. It functions as sort of like a magnifying glass in what's happening in current times. We speak with the artist known as Detour and elite athletes in limbo with the Olympics postponed. We talked with a Paralympian about the challenges of staying in peak condition in not one, but three disciplines. I told my coach, I have to be a triathlete. I can't be this, this single sport athlete. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. After the news about George Floyd's killing at the hands of Minneapolis police, the superintendent of schools in Aurora, Colorado, wrote a letter to his staff. In the letter, Rico Munn wrote about being black, the son of illegal immigrant who came to the United States from the West Indies, and Munn wrote that his relationship to America is complicated. A version of that letter was published as a column recently in Aurora's weekly newspaper, The Sentinel. Superintendent Rico Munn, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. What was it about the killing of George Floyd that you most wanted to convey in that letter? Well, as the world erupted in appropriate outrage, uh, I had you know, several folks reaching out to me from my perspective, from my thoughts on, on, all, of the, on all these issues. Um, and I had to acknowledge that I didn't have any specific answers. But what I had was my own story, my own truth, and I thought I should start from there. And you write that in your dad's America, a traffic stop was a life-and-death encounter. And some might say that it's still like that for many black Americans. How do you see it as being different now? Well, I think we have to acknowledge that um, there have been many legal advances. The civil rights movement pushed forward the legal framework, uh, Brown versus Board of Education. All those things were significant and substantial legal advances that provided uh, a certain range of protections. However, there's still uh, embedded racism. There's still embedded biases, and that still creates a dangerous atmosphere for many African-Americans and African-American males in particular. And you shared your experiences. You write that in America, you've been spit on, called the N-word, harassed by police, denied opportunities, and watched black friends and loved ones systematically jailed, impoverished, and dehumanized. How do you reconcile the America where things, there seem to have been some improvements legally, but those things still happen? Well, I think that's what I was writing about. It's, it's, it's a process of reconciling every day, and it's a process of working towards some of that reconciliation. And what I know to do and what I tried to speak to was if we start from a place of sharing our own truth, our own perspectives, of acknowledging our pain or our privilege, of acknowledging our experiences, that's a place to start a conversation at the very least. And do you feel like you were able to have that conversation in your community and in your school? Well, I think we're always trying to have those conversations. We're always trying to set a place where people feel like they can share those truths and respond to those truths. What's, that's what's incredibly important for our work is not just that we share them, but that we respond to those truths. And a few days ago, you had another piece in the Sentinel about the defund police movement and the Aurora School's relationship with police. 
Recently, the Denver School Board voted to end its contract with the city's police department. In the article you wrote back in 2014, you took measures to shift the relationship between the Aurora Public Schools and the police. And you write that you took steps to change the relationship between police and schools, also called school resource officers or SROs, and your students. What did that shift look like? Well, it started with an understanding and an acknowledgement that any safety and security plan that you're going to have will involve the police. It's, it's not an option to simply say the police will not be involved. And so it's not as simple as saying for us whether they will be there or not be there. It's about what will that relationship be? What will it look like? And so we sat down with the leadership of the Aurora Police Department and talked about uh, what could that relationship look like? What are the things where we could really view as educational opportunities, educational chances to redirect students versus what was the red line? Where was the line where we simply had to engage the police, where they had to be involved? And starting there and really kind of dividing that ground was an important place for us to start our work and our training. And what exactly was the problem that you were trying to solve? Well, we were seeing way too many students who were being uh, moved through that school-to-prison pipeline. We had uh, way too many referrals to law enforcement. We had uh, uh, one of the highest levels of expulsions in the state. We had a situation where simply our kids were being engaged in structures and systems that were not going to be good outcomes for them, and we had to change that. You said there is a red line. What kind of police work do you think should be done in schools, and what shouldn't? Well, it's tough for me to say, you know, exactly, right? We we had to go to sit down with the police and say, as a matter of law, as you understand the law, as we understand the law, when when do we have to call you? When do we have to engage you? Um, And you have to, I think, engage the police in that conversation because obviously they're the ones who own that ground and own that jurisdiction. Uh, But there's obviously a continuum that one can go on from where something is what we all think of as a traditional schoolyard fight to where something is a serious assault. And do you see what you've done in the Aurora schools as translating to city police departments across the country? Well, I think it can be an example for others to look at. We certainly don't believe that we have all the answers, nor have we fixed all of the challenges. But when you look at uh, the dramatic decline uh, from the time where we began that work to today, we've seen a 60% decrease in referrals to law enforcement, and we've seen a significant decrease as well in the disparities uh, between our students of color uh, as far as who gets referred to law enforcement. We've also, over that time, seen a 70% decline in our expulsions. So we believe that we have engaged the right work. Uh, At the same time, we're seeing a dramatic increase in our students, our parents, and our staff reporting that they feel safe in our buildings. As you look at the events of the last few months, how do you think about making those educational moments for your students? Well, I think that's something that we are still trying to get our understanding around. Obviously, um, the world is moving very fast right now. Uh, And as we are trying to process how to deal with students' trauma around COVID-19, we then also have to think about how to deal with students' trauma around these events. Uh, And as we engage with our kids coming back into the fall, we have to spend quality time with them, trying to listen and hear about what their needs are and respond to those needs. And moving back to your article about what you call your complicated relationship with America, in it you say that you dreaded having to break your son's heart by telling him the name and story of George Floyd. Have you had that conversation with him yet? And if you have, what was it like? 
Yeah, I've had that conversation with, with my son and also my, my 13-year-old daughter um, to really kind of make sure they understand what they're seeing on TV, what what's happening in the world. And, you know, the idea that there's racism in the world and that there's injustice in the world is not new for them. But this specific moment in time is something we wanted to make sure that they understood, that they appreciated, and that they also needed to understand that uh, in this world, they need to be thoughtful, be cautious around uh, their interactions uh, in society, how they are seen, how they're perceived, and be thoughtful about how they protect themselves uh, in this world. And before we end, I wonder if there's anything else that is on your mind that you wanted to share or that you wanted to make sure that we talk about. Well, I appreciate the question. I guess, you know, it's it's a very challenging time, and it's a challenging time for lots of reasons. Uh, but the reason that I engage in, in the work that we do here at APS and that our staff does is to respond to the needs of our students, respond to the needs and to serve this community. We recognize that this community needs us to do our work and to do our job incredibly well, and that's something that we're engaged in. We want to be explicit in that and recognizing that we have students who show up uh, where society has stacked the deck against them. We have to respond to that data, and anything short of that is not acceptable. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Rico Munn is the superintendent of Aurora Public Schools. The horrors of racism go back centuries. COVID-19 shook the world in days. Now African-Americans find themselves at the epicenter of both. We, the brown and black-skinned siblings, are exhausted. We're exhausted. We try to tell you our stories, and so oftentimes you dismiss us. Please stop. We're exhausted. We're fearful. We're angry. That's Reverend Nathan Adams in a recent sermon at Park Hill United Methodist Church, where black and white people worship together. My CPR News colleague Donna Bryson interviewed Adams and two other African Americans to talk about life in 2020. Donna, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. You talked to three people. What did you find they had in common? Well, as we just heard from Reverend Adams, there's that sense of of being tired, of being um, having to deal with the same questions and the same issues over and over again. But I don't feel that they express resignation or a sense of defeat. You know, I think back to what we would hear during the 60s, during the civil rights movement, my feet are tired, but my soul is rested. And there's that sense that the soul is rested and ready to continue. And I, I felt that from all of them. So let's talk about a young woman named Shiana Dabney. She's a student at CSU Pueblo. Tell me a little bit about her experience. Well, when I spoke to her, it was over the summer. So she just finished her senior year, or junior year, I'm sorry. And she had done an internship at uh, the state capitol. So she was driving up from... Pueblo every day to intern in her local legislature's office, and uh, she described, you know, being, of course, being advised that interns and other employees should wear their employee badges around their necks as they're going in and out of the building and in the building. She arrived one morning with her other, you know, intern colleagues who included uh, two white males and a Hispanic male, and the first one to go through security was one of the white men who was not wearing his badge. Uh, Sayana and the Hispanic, her Hispanic colleague were, and they were the two who were stopped. And the question, their badges were examined. Uh, 
she definitely felt that they had been profiled. And she brought that up with her supervisor, who said there was not much that could be done uh, unless you know the security guard had shown some kind of pattern of, of profiling or racism. And Gianna told her mother about this. What did her mom have to say? Well, Shanna described it as a, a, one of the many conversations she's had with her parents about the need for perseverance uh, yeah, and the need to go on despite feeling like you are feeling like you are because of racism, feeling like you're not in the right place or you shouldn't be there. And these are similar to conversations she's had with her parents since she was a child, right? She talks about having these kinds of conversations from when she was very little, you know, before she started kindergarten, her father sitting her down and saying, one saying that he expected her to do well in school and saying that she's going to have to work twice as hard to get any recognition and twice as hard because she's black and then a little bit more because she's a woman. And Shanna has some political aspirations. What does she want to do? Uh, she says she wants to run for the school board. She, um, a lot of her schooling was around the world, but also in Colorado Springs in uh, District 11, which is more heavily minority than in the, than other school other districts in the region. And uh, she wants to see what she can do to fix disparities she's seen as a student. You know, when she's traveled to other schools and and seen better accommodations, better fields, better classrooms. She wants to see what she can do about that. Now, you point out in this story that education is one of several areas where Black people are being disproportionately impacted by coronavirus. Why and what other areas is this happening? Well, it's all part of our history of uh, treating Black Americans as second-class citizens in education and housing and jobs and health. Uh, It all piles up, which is something I think that all three of the people I interviewed with this story are, talked about how things pile up, how it creates um, health disparities, and COVID-19 can be exasperated by health health issues such as diabetes or some of the things that, that we see Black Americans suffering disproportionately. So they are dying at higher rates because of COVID-19. Uh, they are losing their jobs at higher rates under the uh, the economic slowdown created by COVID-19 because they are working in the service industry and the restaurant industry in higher rates, at supermarkets at higher rates. Uh, all of these things, as I've seen earlier, just seem to pile up. And going back to Reverend Adams, whose sermon we heard in the introduction, he's actually tracked some of those impacts on his own congregation. He gave you several examples of the racism he's experienced, still experiences personally. Would you share one of those? We talked a little bit about his reaction to another death. We, we were talking about George Floyd earlier, but also during the pandemic, there was a black man named Ahmed Arbery who was shot while jogging in Georgia. And uh, Reverend Adams is an avid runner, a marathoner. He runs five five to seven days a week. And he says when he's out there, he, he's been called the N-word while running in Colorado. He's had trucks with the... Uh, Confederate flag bumper stickers swerved toward him while running in the South. Uh, he worries about what will happen if he meets someone like the men who are accused of killing Almond Arbery. He worries if he'll startle someone who's not expecting to see a black man running. He tries very hard to uh, dress as a runner. <laughs> you know, it's almost as if uh, trying to let people know that he's just running, just like anyone might be running. Uh, he tries very hard to kind of make contact with people as he's running to smile at people to kind of let them know that he's not a threat. And, uh, and that's just become part of his routine of exercise. 
but it doesn't stop them from running every day. We were talking earlier about being tired. That's tiring, but it hasn't stopped him from uh, living his life as best he can. And you told me that the folks that you interviewed, like you said, they're not resigned to what's happening. But you say that there is research on the emotional toll that it takes. It's called racial battle fatigue. What is that like? One of the people I spoke to is uh, Torrance Brown Smith, who's uh, or just finishing, actually just finished at University of Northern Colorado, got a sociology degree. And one of his areas of research at the University of Northern Colorado, and I imagine it will be as he goes on because he's planning to go on for a Ph.D., has been this, uh, this syndrome called racial battle fatigue, which he described as a bit like PTSD, except it's not post. It's kind of ongoing. These uh, small and little and ongoing uh, aggressions that are part of everyday life and that create uh, a psychological and even a, uh, a physical reaction. You know, being tired can also be being uh, ill. And it was interesting when uh, the first time I heard Torrance speak, it was at one of the, the protests we had in Denver following the death of George Floyd. And uh, he said to the crowd that one of the most uh, important things they can do, or <laughs> maybe the most radical things they can do is take a nap, take care of yourselves mm. as African-Americans, because uh Living every day can be hard. And Brown Smith thinks that this moment could actually be a turning point. What does he think about when and whether things might improve? But what I found with all three of the people I spoke to was a real sense of history. And, and one of the one of the uh, moments in history that Torrance raised to me was murder of Emmett Till in 1955 in in Mississippi. It's a black teenager who was killed because of racism, killed because a white woman lied. And the historian uh, said he was admiring Emmett Till's mother for, for daring to have his coffin open so that the world could see how he'd been tortured before he was killed. And, uh, and that moment, kind of like the George Floyd moment, has been seen around the world and has inspired people to protest and inspire change. And perhaps we're seeing the same thing now. Thank you, Donna. Donna Bryson is a reporter for Denverite, which is part of CPR News. You can read her interviews with Reverend Nathan Adams, Shayana Debney, and Torrance Brown-Smith at denverite.com and CPR.org. After the break, how important is health care this election, especially during the pandemic? Voters weigh in. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When you are a Colorado Public Radio member, you make it possible for CPR to cover emerging stories in your community and across Colorado. You support in-depth news coverage, classical music, and local independent music. The majority of Colorado Public Radio's funding comes from individual members. You are essential. And when you join the membership community now, thanks to a $100,000 grant, your gift will be matched dollar for dollar. Double your impact at CPR.org. Hundreds of voters have told CPR that health care is maybe the key issue of the 2020 elections. And that was before the pandemic struck. Next week, Colorado voters will pick a Democratic candidate for Senate. As CPR health reporter John Daly explains, for some voters, coronavirus has made the importance of health care even clearer. On a recent weekend afternoon, Gabriel Levine stands on the west steps of the Capitol. He's here for a protest against police brutality and for racial justice that's just starting to get moving. 
Levine connected the demonstrations to the nation's health system. I really do feel like America can be doing more. That much is definitely sure. Like, I feel like that's apparent to everybody. Like, why are our cops decked out in protective gear, but we can't find a mask for nurses? Levine moved to Denver last year looking for a job in education. In the meantime, he started driving for Lyft. Basically, COVID ate all of that up. What are you doing about insurance? I, I don't have health insurance. Uh, I, I hope I don't get sick. Levine says he backs expanding coverage and universal health insurance. We've seen various countries around the world execute it. I think the only thing holding Americans back right now is greed. We know it can happen. Like, it's just like getting the people in power to wake up to the reality of the situation. Even as people take to the streets in protest, Colorado is in the midst of a Democratic primary for U.S. Senate. Both candidates say the pandemic has made it clear how urgent providing health care is. Look at COVID-19 and how many, how disproportionately African-Americans were, were stricken. That's former Governor John Hickenlooper during a debate last week. Health care is a right. Uh, it's not a privilege. Hickenlooper wants to establish a public option. He thinks it would spur competition and lower health costs. His opponent, Andrew Romanoff, a former state house speaker, backs Medicare for all. It would make the federal government the single payer of health insurance. He thinks a new plan should replace a broken system that leaves a quarter of the population uninsured or underinsured. That was never a great idea. During a pandemic, it's a disaster. His plan broadens coverage for things like mental health and substance use treatment and long-term care. It's not clear how the plan would be paid for and could mean an increase in taxes. Voters like Ken DeVilbis, a computer analyst from Brighton, say they're following the ongoing debate carefully. I think it is a major, it's either number one or number two on almost everybody's list I've talked to, including my family, you know, in, in other states. DeVilbis is a moderate Democrat who'd prefer Hickenlooper be the candidate. He's also 65 and on Medicare. He blames the administration with fumbling the health response to COVID-19 from the beginning. He says people in his age group he's talked to feel the same. 90% of the people I talk to say that that is going to be a defining issue in how they vote. We're the ones that are up against it. You know, there's no two ways about that. Other voters, though, say the pandemic has reinforced their political views. Johnny Davis is 59 and lives in Divide, west of Colorado Springs. Both he and his wife work in healthcare, doing imaging. X-rays, MRIs, CT scans. It's had a major effect on me because I work in the hospitals and we've had a reduction in hours and a reduction in staff. The revenue for our hospital system just dried up. And so now we're, we're starting back up and it's, it's time to catch up. Davis says he's a conservative and praises the work of both incumbent Senator Cory Gardner and the president. It doesn't change my thinking because I think he's still the best candidate for the election. I think that a lot of this COVID, there's been a lot of overreaction and a lot of overreach by government. Views of the government's role seem to be at the heart of things for many voters. Don't shoot! Don't shoot! Back at the protest, 21-year-old Mihaela Benson says coronavirus has only amplified her view that government should make sure everyone has access to basic health care. She's a student from Englewood and caregiver for the elderly. Now with this pandemic, I do hope that it kind of ignites a fire under a lot of people's butts that like, yeah, a lot of people don't have insurance or don't like can't afford the like top-notch doctor to help them take care of themselves. Voters will have their say soon. 
Ballots are already being cast in the Democratic Senate primary, with results coming June 30th. I'm John Daly, CPR News. You can read or listen to Colorado Matters extended interviews with both John Hickenlooper and Andrew Romanoff at CPR.org. A series of murals depicting victims of police and gun violence, as well as living leaders in the black community, has spread across Denver. The first was an image of George Floyd on Colfax Avenue. Several more have followed. They're the work of Denver artist Thomas Evans, also known as Detour, who has been painting almost nonstop this month. Thomas, welcome back to the show. Hello, how are you? Doing well, how about you? Good, good, good. Just trying to keep painting. And you're the artist behind the new murals. They're appearing on buildings throughout Denver. How did this project get started? Well, one of the artists behind the murals, uh, I have my friend from uh, Miami named Hyra, so he's been painting them with me. But um, really, it started when I went to go get lunch down on Colfax. I was driving back to my studio and saw this wall. And before this, I, I was just sitting in my studio trying to figure out exactly how I wanted to create some work to help with the protests and the current climate. But uh, I didn't want to force anything. But it wasn't until when I saw this wall on Colfax between Race and High, it spoke to me. And went into the business, asked if I could paint it. Uh, the owners got back to me the next day, and they said, hey, we were looking for a painter uh, to do this wall. And she said her husband actually mentioned someone doing a George Floyd on there. And I was like, oh, great, because that's exactly who I wanted to, to paint. So it was almost the next day when I went out there and started painting. So it was really organic in, in many ways. And same with the others, uh, my friends from uh, Erico Motorsports, came through to see me paint the George Floyd one. And they said, hey, we have a wall if you want to do another one, because we were talking about doing a Breonna Taylor one uh, to showcase, you know, black women as well. So we went over there the next day, started painting that one. And then our friends had another wall. So it was like two blocks up. So we just picked up our paint and carried it over there almost, you know, two days later and started painting and Elijah McClain, because a lot of people were talking about Elijah, and we wanted to make sure we, we showcased someone local. One of your most recent murals is of Isabella Thalys, the 21-year-old woman who was murdered in Denver's ballpark neighborhood this month. Thomas, you met Isabella just a week before she died. Tell me about your impression of her. So I met Isabella when I was doing a mural in a clothing store. You know, I knew her boyfriend at the time, Darian, and... They came in while I was painting the mural and met her in super bubbly attitude and uplifting and had a lot of energy. She just turned 21. It made an impression on me. Really tragic to hear what happened to her almost a week later. So that's when I was like, okay, I have to figure out ways of giving a gift to the family, giving a gift to the community. And, you know, street art was the one thing that I was doing at the time. So I wanted to use that to sort of commemorate her. So I reached out to Leon Gallery, talked to them about doing a mural on the side of their building. And they were super excited about the opportunity of, you know, allowing her to sort of live on on the building. And the building owner was uh, really receptive to to that as well. So it was almost three days after I heard about the, the story that I started actually painting her. And from there, it was just meeting the family and having the community sort of rally around the mural as I was painting. And now that space has even become a sort of place to grieve, right? Yeah, so I I overheard her mother even talking about 
um, that rather than going to the cemetery tomorrow, and it's like she can actually go to a mural and, and visit her daughter. I believe Eric from the Young Gallery will try to see if they can rename the park that's right there as well. So, you know, it sort of sparked an entire sort of movement to see how we can really create that area in, in her name. So for a lot of people, this was something that really struck them. And people are bending over backwards to figure out how they can help and keep her name alive. It's a way of kind of keeping somebody's story. So that's Isabella Thales, a 21-year-old woman who is murdered in Denver's ballpark neighborhood this month. Like you're describing this momentum that you've built up, how many murals have you painted now in the last month? I'd say seven. Um, I'm working on my eighth. And then I fly to Milwaukee to paint John and his son on a wall as well. So, you know, it's just mural after mural. Uh, I've been loving the, the opportunity to showcase people in the community, um, whether they're, they passed away or whether they're still alive. And I want to just show them their roses while they're here. And that's important because several of the people you painted, like you said, they're not victims of gun violence. You want to make sure that you're celebrating them as in their life. Tell me a little bit more about the Aurora school teacher that you decided to paint. So Brittany Antoinette is a friend of mine. We went to school together. She was one of my colleagues when I worked at Student Life on uh, the Aurora campus for University of Colorado Denver. Sometimes we forget about teachers unless there's a strike or some scandal or something like that. So I was like, you know, let me just go out my way and actually just paint her because she was sort of what this protest is all about, too, a black woman. I am curious about your style, though, because these portraits... They're larger than life. They're vibrantly colored. There's blues and rich purples and oranges and pinks. Tell me about how you decide to portray the people that you're painting. So a lot of the colors that I use in my portraits, the the bright, bold colors, so yellows and blues and teals and oranges, a lot of that really came from life painting. And before I started doing life painting on stage, it was capturing flesh tones and capturing what the person actually looked like. But when I had to do live painting, it's like you had to get something done within a specific amount of time. So I didn't have time to mix. But this allowed me to not be as restricted as I was before and sort of opened me up to using any color I wanted to to represent a nose or an eyelid or whatever. And it just stuck with me. And I've just been refining it and bringing it into the street art realm. And what about the expressions that you're giving people? So a lot of the people that I do that are local, that I know, I'll take the portrait myself, mainly because there's a lot to skip from an angle or the, the, how the shadow is casted over the nose and, you know, where the light source is. So for me, it's really important to take your own pictures and use your own references so that you're able to really capture the emotion of someone or make it a little bit more dramatic. So... You know, for me, it's like I love these shadows because when you have a lot of shadows in a painting, I'm able to use really dark blues and purples, and those are set beside, you know, really light and bold yellows and oranges. So for me, it's like I have to have that right specific reference photo to capture someone and then place them on a wall to where, you know, when you drive by, it just pops off the wall and you have to sort of stop and look at it. And like you said, the these murals are becoming a part of the community, and even the work on them is very public. You're not 
in a studio by yourself and anyone can stop and watch you work on the murals. How has that affected your craft? I paint a lot in public, so I'm not shy when it comes to having people come up to me and talk with me these past couple of murals because these subjects have been personal and everyone knows about the story. It's become less of an art piece and more therapy and more of a, just a listening process because a lot of people want to just talk. It's opening up the idea, more so the idea of art being essential. There was a poll talking about the least essential workers and artists were at the top of it. And Eric from Leon Gallery and I were just like looking at that saying, why? Because the work that we were doing meant a lot to the people in the community in terms of keeping people's memories alive and, you know, making sure that when people go to work or home or getting lunch, they see these individuals. And if they don't know who they are, they ask questions. So you're both a storyteller, but also a story keeper as you're listening to people. And what are people telling you while you listen? A lot of it is sometimes their own story. There was a mother who had her child taken from her in 2014 at the Bluebird Theater. And I'm still trying to figure out ways to sort of make sure that uh, her son is still remembered. So that's like one of the, the next things I really want to work on. So it's like I would have never known that if I hadn't done this mural in that location. So a lot of people really just want to talk about their experience or sometimes even just the mural process because it's a mystery to them how a lot of these murals go up. So it's a community-building process when it comes to a lot of the street art. And sort of the nature of murals is we never know how long they're going to be on the wall. And as long as they're there, what do you hope their function is in the community? Like I said before, one of the, the functions of a lot of the street art is just to communicate a message, keep it alive. So a lot of the people that I've been painting recently... Really, it's like you're learning more and more about them or you're sort of constantly being reminded of their story. So as the world is opening up now and people are starting to do their normal activities and sports is opening back up, a lot of times you'll get distracted. So like I said, when you're going to work or going home or getting lunch or going to babysit or whatever, it's like you're constantly seeing the image of this individual and you're constantly being reminded, hey, this is the story that happened. We can't forget about this. Or it could be this is who's in the community and this is who you should know from the community and this is what they've done in the community. And, you know, they're not a rock star, a sports athlete. It's a teacher. And she's molding the future, and you should know that. And you, now you're knowing more about how important teachers are and educators are. The function that's sort of like a magnifying glass and what's happening in current times. Thomas, thank you so much for sharing. Well, thank you for having me. Thomas Evans, also known as Detour, is one of the artists who's been painting murals around Denver, which depict victims of police and gun violence, as well as leaders in the community. We'll be right back with Paralympian taking on the challenge of staying in top shape in three sports despite a delay in the Olympic Games. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The biggest story of 2020 was supposed to be the elections, but 2020 had other plans. I'm News Director Rachel Estabrook, and the elections are still going on. More than a thousand of you helped guide our reporting at CPR News ahead of the presidential primary. Now we're asking you to do it again. 
Fill out a short survey online and help decide what CPR News asks the candidates in the weeks and months ahead. Find the survey at CPR.org slash Colorado 2020. Voters have their ballots for the state's June 30th primary election. One of the tighter primary races this season is the Democratic primary in Colorado's 3rd Congressional District. Two candidates are vying to take on Republican incumbent Scott Tipton this fall. Both have money in the bank and a message they think will resonate with voters. CPR's Caitlin Kim reports. Democrat James Iacino is a political newcomer. What motivates his first campaign are his two young kids and the direction the country is headed. Divisiveness that we're seeing and, uh, you know, just the level of rhetoric. And uh, I felt that it was, you know, my duty to serve my country and step up and fight for their future. He's a third generation Coloradan who worked his way up the family seafood business. Iacino thinks that's the type of experience voters want. His vision for the virtual campaign includes Saturday talks with small business owners. Today we're joined by Wendy Seeger, Locavores in uh, Alamosa, and uh, thank you, Wendy, so much for being here. Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm excited to be here and to support um, the campaign. And it's his way to connect with people, and more importantly, and, um, get voters to know more about him. After all, the candidate he's running against in the primary is a known quantity. Diane Mitch Bush has lived in Colorado's Western Slope for decades. She's a former Route County Commissioner and a former state representative. I know how to legislate. I know how to follow the facts. And I always tell the truth. And that's what we need. She also ran against incumbent Scott Tipton in 2018 and lost. She says she learned a lot from that race to help her this time around. And Diane Mitch Bush is already looking beyond Iacino to Tipton criticizing him for his votes in Congress. He's voted with the president almost 97 percent of the time uh, and in many ways uh, a lapdog, if you will, of the president. According to the 538 political website, Tipton's voted with President Trump about 95 percent of the time. That closeness to Trump may play well in this conservative district. While demographics are shifting, it's still not a toss-up seat. And this is where Iacino sees his opening. It's not about a red team or a blue team. He's swinging for the center. Moderates are, are looking for something different. They don't want the extremes on either side. And I think everybody's kind of tired of what they see as the, the 5% extremes getting all the news coverage and not talking about, well, how's this actually affecting me? And can we compromise and can we move forward? Both candidates can point to high-profile state Democrats who support their campaign. Diane Mitch Bush thinks her experience will help her stand out with voters. Many people in our district are struggling to make ends meet. Uh, there's a great deal of in income inequality in our district, a lack of social mobility, and James and I are both concerned about these issues. But the difference is I've experienced them. Uh, I know what it is to live paycheck to paycheck. On the issues like economic opportunity, the two aren't that far apart. This is how Iacino describes himself. I mean, I consider myself progressive but pragmatic. Both Iacino and Mitch Bush say they'll support whoever the eventual Democratic nominee is. We need a representative who listens to us, who works for us, and who actually does represent us. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee hopes this is the year a Democrat takes Colorado's third congressional district. Both Iacino and Mitch Bush outraised Tipton in the first quarter, but the Republican still has more cash on hand. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News.
Colorado is home to many elite athletes who train at the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. The athletes are in a sort of limbo, forced to wait until 2021 to compete on sport's biggest stage after this year's games were postponed by the global pandemic. Kyle Kuhn joins us to share the stress of waiting and why he's decided to move in with his family in Carbondale last week. He's a blind athlete in residence at the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center. Kyle, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And Kyle, you normally live on campus with other athletes at the training center. Why did you leave? Um, well, it's uh, to be frank, it's been really hard on us athletes. You know, I mean, I was on campus for the last 12 weeks. I was just spending lots of time in my room. Um, all of our facilities were shut down, so I, I couldn't swim in the pool. I couldn't run on a treadmill um, in the gym. Uh, we couldn't you know, go to the gym and lift weights. We were only going to be allowed to leave campus if it was deemed essential. So like, if we had to go pick up a prescription from a pharmacy off campus, then we had to get permission from our, our national governing body, as well as the training center operations. Uh, you know, there, there weren't a whole lot of us left on, on campus um, you know, for my best performance, you know, my, my coach and I decided that it was best for me to probably come home, spend some time with my family. And these are pretty serious lockdowns you're describing, and the U.S. Olympic Committee put them in place in the interest of health and safety. What's been the effect on training? Um, so the effect on training has been absolutely enormous, you know, especially for, for me. I'm a, I'm a triathlete, but when this lockdown occurred, um, you know, I went from training for three sports, plus strength and conditioning, plus, you know, massage and soft tissue work once or twice a week, as well as, you know, various types of recovery methods. And the only thing that I could basically do on my own was I, you know, I was able to get a stationary bike in my bedroom. And I, you know, I was doing that for 20 hours a week for, <laughs> for several weeks there until I, I developed a little bit of an overuse injury, which then I had to back off and take care of myself there as well. So it was, uh, so, you know, going from training for three sports to, to one sport, it was a big shift. And, you know, just, you know, I, I, I told my coach, I was like, I, I, I have to be a triathlete. I can't be this, this single sport athlete. Um, you know, and, and even though I didn't spend tons of time off campus before, you know, I, um, when I did want to run or bike outside, I could easily get a guide. That became a major, major struggle. I had to limit the amount of, of time that you know my guide could come on campus to get me if we were going to go out for a, a bike ride or a run or, or something like that. So it, was, it affected my training big time. Well, and what I'm not hearing you describe in all of this is anything to do with swimming. And obviously, you're a triathlete. So how... Do you train for swimming during lockdown? Um, so the pools in Colorado Springs, actually, there was one or two pools that opened up a couple of weeks ago. So I was, my, uh, my coach was able to get the, the team a little bit of lane time at, uh, at one of the pools. So I actually was able to get out and I swam three times uh, in the last two weeks. But before that, I, I had not swum since mm, mid-March. 
So the only swim training I could do was I bought myself a pull-up bar that I can stick in the doorway. So I was, I was trying to work my swimming muscles by doing lots of pull-ups. And then I, I had what are called stretch cords that I can like close in a, in a door. And then I can uh, hinge at the waist to kind of work and, and develop my swimming strength muscles. But swimming is such a technical sport. It's going to probably take a while to, uh, to get my, my swim fitness and my swim speed back where they were when, I, you know, when we stopped swimming in, back in March. It sounds like your training routine, it got kind of tedious. I do wonder, what do you think the impact of the lockdown measures will be on Team USA's overall performance in the 2021 games? You know, it, it's hard to project. I think a lot of us have just gotten to gotten to the point where we're just like, you know, we we can't even think as far ahead as how are we going to perform at, at the games. I have to focus on, you know, what can I do to get better today, tomorrow, next week, you know, and I just have to take it one workout one day at a time. And Kyle, you were trying to win one of two slots on the U.S. Paralympic triathlon team when the main qualification race was canceled because of the pandemic. You had a solid chance of making the team. How does it feel to know that you were that close? <laughs> oh, man, it's, it's, it's hard. Um, I was swimming, cycling, and running better than I, than I ever have before in my life, and you know, my, my coach and I and my, and my guide, we were all just super stoked and super excited to, to set foot on the race course. And the rug just got pulled right out from under us. So it was, uh, it was, it was a gut punch, but we're, we're hopeful that um, we can get some, that races will be put back on the calendar later this year. And, you know, we're hopeful that uh, we'll get the opportunity to, to race and earn our spot on the, uh, on the team. And, hopefully uh, be showing up in Tokyo in, uh, in August 2021. And this is such a roller coaster. I know as a blind para-athlete, you also rely on a sighted guide to lead you on the swims, rides, and runs. And you mentioned mm-hmm. that that was really hard on campus. Have you been able to go on those rides and runs more now that you're back in Carbondale? Um, so I've only been in Carbondale for, for a few days. Um, but... Every morning, like my mom and I take the dogs for for a walk, and that's been a huge <laughs> mental boost. But already, I'm I'm lining up plans with some of my former training partners and guides to do some running in the mountains and some some backcountry hiking and and climbing and you know just some some fun times playing in the mountains. So it's been a nice mental break. But yeah, it'll it'll be a little bit easier. Well, it'll be a lot easier to to get out and about now that I'm back in Carbondale. Yeah. And it strikes me that so much of what you're talking about is not just the physical challenges of going through these training cycles without a end in sight, um, but also just the mental toughness of all of this. And as a para-athlete, you've already overcome a lot of physical challenges. Are you better equipped to deal with this kind of uncertainty? And also tell me if this question is loaded with false assumptions. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think, I don't think the question is loaded with false assumptions or, or, or anything like that. You know, on the one hand, you know, as a para athlete, you know, as a, yes, I, I'm, I face 
challenges, you know, that are unique to me and on a daily basis. Um, but, um, on the other hand, you know, everyone faces some type of, of challenge in their daily life. Some are just more prevalent than others. You know, for me, like, obviously my, my biggest challenge on a day-to-day basis is the fact that I, I can't see a darn thing. So that has definitely prepared me to try and, and roll with the punches a little bit with a little slightly re- less resistance than, um, than maybe, you know, an, an able-bodied triathlete does, you know, I, I, I don't know, but I, I but I, I think that para-athletes, you know, we, we try to, for the most part, at least all the para-athletes that I've met, we, we try to look on the bright side as much as we possibly can. You know, we're like, you know, it could be worse. You know, at least we're, at least we're, we're doing, you know, sports that we love, we've, you know, for the most part, we've been able to turn what is essentially a hobby for the majority of the world into something that kind of sort of resembles a, a career. And then looking ahead to 2021, it's coming up and you'll still have a shot to make the U.S. Paralympic team in triathlon. Given all that you've gone through during the pandemic, I know you've talked about nervousness, but is there any uncertainty in your mind that you'll make the team? Um, I mean, there's always a, there's always a kernel of doubt somewhere buried deep in, in your mind, but at, at my core, I'm a, I'm a triathlete and I'm a competitor. And I know that over the course of the last several years, I've been right up there with the best and I, I've gone head to head and shoulder to shoulder, uh, with the best in the world. So I'm very confident in my abilities and I plan on being on the start line in Tokyo. So that's my plan. And I, I plan to proudly wear my my red white and blue um and represent and represent the u.s kyle thank you so much for joining us thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it kyle coon is a blind athlete in residence at the u.s olympic and paralympic training center he competes in triathlon that's it for colorado matters today thanks for the team that puts this together carl bielik Andrew Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, Alexander mcmahon ryan warner michael hughes shame rumsey and natasha watts This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.